Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 1952, director Stanley Donnan and star Gene Kelly gave the world what many would consider to be the greatest musical of all time. In 2019, Buffalo Trace gives us a weeded bourbon that flies off the shelves. The film is singing in the rain. The whiskey is Weller Special Reserve. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1952 film Singing in the Rain. Bradley, had you seen the movie Singing in the Rain prior to this watch? Maybe. May- How is that a maybe? I don't know, man. <laughs> this is a new answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched so many of these old films when I was like a kid. Yeah. That like there was certain parts of this movie where I'm like, have I just seen this because I've watched like, you know, specials on Gene Kelly and they've showed clips? Sure. Or have I actually sat down and watched it? So I will say this. I definitely was watching it with fresh eyes. Yeah. Because I, I really don't remember if I'd seen it or not. You know, that's that's actually a really great point. And I th- we'll get into why I feel this way about the movie. But I've seen so many clips from the movie and the movie is so clippable. Right. That you kind of forget about the movie around the clips. Right. And so I watched, I've seen this movie 20, 25 times, and I went back and watched it again, and I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this whole story element. It's not just songs where Gene Kelly's dancing, you know, around in the rain. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of fat on this movie, if I'm being 100% honest with you. I really do think that there's some stuff that could be trimmed off of this movie, but we'll get into that in a minute. This movie came out in 1952. It was directed by Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly. They had a co-directing credit. Gene Kelly was just coming off of An American in Paris, which we have reviewed here on the show. That movie won Best Picture. It was a hallmark, a high point of film musicals for the MGM studio. And Gene Kelly followed it up with this movie. His co-star was Debbie Reynolds, who I believe was 19 or 20 when they filmed this movie, which made her like at least 20 years younger than Gene Kelly. The third build person in the movie is Donald O'Connor, who is fantastic. Best performance of the movie. Yeah, I think I think he might be. Uh, This movie won zero Oscars. We're kind of on a roll here with the zero Oscar winners this month. It was nominated for two. Gene Hagen was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for her role as Lena Lamont, who is the villainous of the movie. She's not the villainous of the movie. She's the worst human being of all time. (laughs) She's the villainous of the world. (laughs) Of humanity. It was also nominated for Best Original Score for Lenny Hayton. Uh, And Donald O'Connor had actually won a Golden Globe for Best Actor, Musical or Comedy, but did not get nominated uh, for the Oscar. Talk to me about the Golden Globes for a second. Yeah. Are they like the redheaded stepchild of the Oscars? They kind of are. So the Golden Globes are voted on by this group called the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Okay. And from what I know of them, there's only like 50 of them. Okay. 
And the Globes came out. I think the year Donald O'Connor won for Singing in the Rain was the first year of the Golden Globe. So they haven't been around as long as the Oscars. They happen before the Oscars. So they're really, they're, they can be kind of helpful for forecasting so it's the Oscars. Like the Iowa primary. Yeah, a little bit. But they, they award movies and TV. Oh. And they split their award winners into drama categories and musical or comedy categories. Huh, okay. Yeah. So Donald O'Connor won Best Actor, but only among musical comedy people. Right. So that's the Golden Globes. Huh. Yeah. But again, he didn't get nominated for the Oscar. So So would you say that an actor, let's say let's say that like a B list actor. Yeah. You know, maybe not your Russell Crowe or your, you know, your A list type of people, your Leos of the world. Like let's say a B list actor gets a golden globe. Yeah. Will he or she be really excited about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's still a major award. Would would Leonardo DiCaprio be excited? No. Okay. When you watch a trailer and they're like going through the people in the movie at the end of the trailer. Yeah. They will list Academy Award nominee. Right. Before they'll list Golden Globe winner. Right. So like if you won the Globe but only got nominated for the Oscar. Right. That's still somehow more prestigious than winning the Globe. Okay. So that's kind of where we're at with the Golden Globe. I just Globes. feel like I am a very average movie going person. Yeah. And I never understand the like I understand the difference. I know that the Oscars are the Oscars right. and the Golden Globes are a lesser state of being. Yeah. But I just never knew fully. Why. I mean, the Globes are cool because people go there to have a good time and get drunk. Oh, like they're a much more loosey goosey kind of award ceremony. So it's like kind of going to NASCAR instead of going to horse racing. But if you win the Golden Globe, you do have a leg up in the Oscar race because all the publicity is on you now. Huh. So like it's good to win the Golden Globe. Yeah. Obviously, it's not like something that doesn't matter do at the all. Stars attend. the Golden Oh, yeah, Globes? they do. Like Leo would go to a Golden for Globe. Sure. Okay. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. There there you have it, folks. That's our uh, special <laughs> bonus episode on Golden Globes. But getting back into this movie, <laughs> Singing in the Rain. Why don't you go ahead and explain this movie for us? My favorite segment of the whole podcast every week. Brad explains Singing in the Rain. I think we should change it to you explaining it simply for the fact that we could call it Bob Splaining things. <laughs> Bob Splaining. Yeah, I love how that sounds like an insult. Yeah. Stop Bob Splaining me. <laughs> It's where somebody just thinks that they're so much better than you, primarily because they're taller than you. Yeah. They just like also look... because I just am better than you. At... Yeah. All right. So we're not going to Bob Splain. We're going to Brad Splain. <laughs> <laughs> so Singing in the Rain. It is a musical with Gene Kelly, and he is a absolutely star famous silent film actor. And the movie is set in the time where there was a huge transition from silent films to what they called at the time talkies, or what we would call a movie <laughs> with people talking in right. it. So they're transitioning into the, the talking film industry, and it's about the challenges of what silent films were and what they needed to transition to be. And what I mean by that is perfectly explained by the character of Lena Lamont, the worst human being ever to exist, she worked perfectly as a silent film actress because she was beautiful. And that's all she really needed to do was sit there and look pretty and make faces that were either sad or happy or angry. You know, she didn't have to talk at all. And it, it's played up for laughs in the movie that the first time you hear her talk, her beauty just falls away. I mean, it disappears yeah. so fast. Well, and not to interrupt Brad explains, but like they do that really well. They yes. string you along for a while. It's probably like 15 minutes into the movie before she talks and she's been on screen a ton. Yep. But they just really cleverly keep her from opening her mouth and talking. Right. 
So the the essence of the movie is about this transition from silent film to talking film. But then the underlying story that's really being told is the love story between Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds and how the start of the relationship, uh, Debbie Reynolds is disparaging towards silent film actors because essentially they're vaudeville type characters. They act very large, if you will. They make large gestures and movement and it's all action and then they put up a you know a placard with what they're saying and they don't actually they don't actually have to act. And so she kind of calls him out on this and he realizes that she's right that he is not necessarily a great actor as he is. He needs to change and adapt and grow into the new world that is coming to get him. Brad, as you entered into this movie, you said you did it with fresh eyes and you've done it now coming off of an American in Paris. Right. What are your initial impressions of this movie or what were you expecting going into it so i was really interested to see where gene kelly could go after his performance in an american in paris sure because i really enjoyed him in an american in paris we talked about it on the previous episode the the scene with him and the children yeah is just so good it's lighthearted. it's fun it's everything a musical should be about right and so i was really interested coming into singing in the rain with the weight of public opinion yeah. that is so high on yeah. it. I was curious to see where he would go. Because honestly, I I had seen American in Paris personally, but I don't know if I'd ever heard of it outside of... Like, you hear about Singing in the Rain all the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'd never heard of an American in Paris. Well, and I think, you know, having seen both movies so many times now, I, I t- kind of took a break from watching Singing in the Rain because I was trying to get ready for this podcast. Right. And... I watch an American in Paris and you know, I love, wait, you took a break from it. Like you just watch it once a week. Well, no, but like, <laughs> you know how like you hear a song too many times and you're like, I need to give that song some space. Yeah. I've seen singing in the rain so many times. I probably haven't watched it in five years. Yeah. You know, we watched an American in Paris and you know, my feelings about Vincent Minnelli. Like I love Vincent Minnelli, the director, but the knock on American in Paris is it's such a pretty movie. It's so beautiful that it kind of keeps you at arm's length a little bit. Yeah. And Singing in the Rain, I feel like, kind of swings the pendulum in the other direction where it's so, like, blue-collar, down-to-earth. This We're going to make a fun little movie that everyone's going to laugh at because it's yeah. funny. And I feel like I went into it thinking, can Stanley Donnan live up to the artistry of Vincent Minnelli? And I came away thinking, kind of. Okay. You know what I mean? Explain like I don't that. I don't think that Stanley Donnan is a bad director. Right. He's doing something completely different from yes. what Vincent Minnelli was doing. And I noticed it right at the beginning. You know, it fades up and they're at this big movie premiere for Don Lockwood and Lena Lamont, who are, you know, Gene Kelly and and Gene Hagen, the biggest stars in Hollywood. And I noticed there's very quick cuts right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, there's reaction shots. You get the crowd reacting to everyone who's arriving. Everything's being played for gags. Like if you know anything about the silent movie era, some of the people that are coming out of the cars are riffs on actual silent movie stars. Right. But then they do this really cool thing where Gene Kelly tells the story of how he came up in the business and it's all made up. Your success is an inspiration to young people all over the world. Please. Well, to begin with, any story of my career would have to include my lifelong friend, Cosmo Brown. We were kids together, grew up together, worked together. Yes? Well, Dora, I've had one motto which I've always lived by. Dignity. Always dignity. 
This was instilled in me by mom and dad from the very beginning. They sent me to the finest schools, including dancing school. That's where I first met Cosmo. And with him, I used to perform for all of mom and dad's society friends. And they show you this. I loved that. Yeah, I did too. And they show you this montage of like what was really happening. And again, it's all played for laughs. And so you get this idea from the very beginning of the movie. This is going to be a gag filled movie. But Stanley Donnan is doing some really cool stuff from a director standpoint because he's got Gene Kelly looking right into the camera and breaking the fourth wall. And they do this throughout the movie. It's so weird because Vincent Minnelli would never have someone break the fourth wall. Right. And there's points where Gene Kelly's breaking the fourth wall because he's actually supposed to be talking to a camera. And then there's also points where like they just finish a number and the way they finish a dance number is just to look in the camera and make a pose. Yeah. Are they performing for me? Is this just how Stanley Donnan likes to mess with form and break the fourth wall? But you get the sense right off the bat that Minnelli and Stanley Donnan are in completely different like philosophies about how they direct a movie. Not only a movie, but how to direct a musical. Yeah, for sure. The interesting thing for me about what you just said, though, is that when the flashback, when he's at the mic and he's telling the crowd about growing up as, a, as an actor, yeah. I'm using air quotes right now, you thought that that was just for laughs? No, I mean, like it, to me, that grounded Kelly's character sure, and made me I mean, fall in love with him. It gave you so much backstory. The the funny parts of it are that you've got Don Lockwood, the movie star, right, feeding into like the Hollywood myth of you know I was brought up on Shaw and Moliere, and then yeah. you see them like sneaking into this really seedy theater, right? And so the juxtaposition of those two things is what's funny. I mean, like it yeah. is, it makes you chuckle. So I want to go along with what we've been saying about uh, Stanley Donnan and what he did with this opening montage and kind of playing with form and breaking the fourth wall because he does it so much that I can't tell if every instance of it is deliberate or if he's just not as good of a director as like a Vincent Minnelli. Do you know what I mean? There's a number where the talking pictures have started and it's a musical number where the guy sings beautiful girl in the context of the movie, like in the world, the movie's building. They show the director and there's one guy with one camera on a tripod cranking the camera to get it to film. Right. But then they show the musical number happen. It's all these ridiculous, like sweeping crane shots. And like the, <laughs> the, the number ends with this shot that comes up from the floor, multiple stories up. And all the people are bent over into this circle. Right. And then they cut back to the director and he's like, cut. And it's still one guy with a tripod. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't tell if... Stanley Donnan was trying to make a funny visual joke hmm. or if that's just an oversight because there's parts of this movie that have such brilliant satire and then there's parts of the movie that feel like they're kind of just thrown together yeah. and there's enough of both that I can never tell which is which. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So essentially it broke immersion for you. A little bit. In yeah. The, in the sense that like you're immersed in the movie and then you see a logical inconsistency of there's no way he could have filmed what was just shown right. with a single... It's not even that it's like illogical. It's just that I can't tell if I'm supposed to be laughing or if it's unintentional comedy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I guess I never really picked up on that. And that wasn't... I remember specifically the camera guy cranking on it. I think if anything, I, I would have just thought that this is the type of musical they would have wanted to film in 1930. Right. 
I mean, and, and there are instances, like I said, in this movie where the camera work is so spectacular. And just because the characters are breaking the fourth wall doesn't mean that the camera work isn't amazing. Right at the beginning of the movie, when Lockwood and Lamont premiere their silent film, they come out afterwards and Lena keeps trying to talk and Don keeps catching her. Yeah. And every time they do that, there's this very subtle push in with the camera yep. and you get closer yep. to them as they talk to the camera. And then when they kind of step back, the camera pulls back a little bit too. And Donnan does so many of those little tricks with the camera. The camera in this movie is constantly moving. Um, in the singing in the rain number, I was watching this with my wife and we've seen the scene so many times that we're kind of just like diagramming the shots. Now yeah. the, the part at the end of the singing in the rain scene where he jumps off the curb and is twirling down the street right before he jumps off the curb. There's this really long tracking dolly shot. It follows him all the way down the sidewalk. Then it cuts to him jumping off the sidewalk and it's a crane shot and it pulls all the way back. And then it goes right back into another dolly shot. Stanley Donnan is a master with a moving camera. But again, then there's like these instances in the movie where I have no idea how he missed some of the things that made it into the movie that are yeah. just like little tiny mistakes. Yeah. As you were talking about the way the movie was filmed, I was thinking about an American in Paris. I feel like Singing in the Rain is a very smooth movie. And I feel like An American in Paris is a very polished movie. What do you mean when you say smooth? The 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 camera, specifically sure. the camera work. The camera work is just very smooth. And the moving camera never distracts you from the action in the movie. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and I think I think it just kind of moves smoothly from scene to scene, and the camera work is really well done. Whereas I feel like the the camera work in An American in Paris was just much more polished. It was much a little more stationary. It was yep. a little more... Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's just a feel that I have. No, I get that. American in Paris was a slower movie, mm -hmm. and I don't think it ever really achieved like the heights that this movie achieved. It was kind of like a consistent 8 to 9 out of 10. Yeah. But this movie feels like... They had 20 minutes worth of script yeah. and they stretched it to two hours. There's parts of this movie, the first half especially, there's only like one or two musical numbers in the first half of the movie. And mm -hmm. then you hit the halfway mark and it's like song, 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 song. You know, we were so used to seeing the singing in the rain number, the good morning number, the Broadway melody ballet. I felt like the story was stretched so much. Yeah. And part of the reason it felt so stretched to me was because the songs didn't really flow out of the story. No. One thing that American in Paris did really well, even though it was a slower story, was when Gene Kelly's singing to Leslie Caron, you know, our love is here to stay. That's a, that the character is motivated to sing that. And it's yeah. an organic thing that he does. In this movie, it's kind of just like, well, it's time to show how the Roaring Twenties looked. Let's do this uh, Wedding of the Painted Dolls number. Let's right. do this other number. And it well, seems a lot of times like the songs are just thrown in. To throw a song in. They, and they literally were. When he's explaining how they're going to turn the Dueling Cavalier into a musical, yeah. he just says, and then he's going to be actually a modern guy. Right. Uh, what do they call him? A, a hoofer, I think. A yeah, hoofer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, and he's a modern hoofer, and he's running through the streets. Yeah. And then they do that for literally 15 minutes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and you're, it's and you're very, just kind of like. It's very obvious that like Kelly wanted to compete with the ballet from American in Paris. So he threw a ballet into Singing in the Rain. Right. It really is just wedged in there. Yeah. And it's not as good. It's not as well made. See, here's the thing. I actually like the ballet in Singing in the Rain better because really? in American in Paris, it's so poetic. Yeah. And, and slow and drawn out. Yeah. And I think that's one area where Singing in the Rain in this instance, the quick cuts 
the camera that's constantly pushing in, zooming out, the kinetic energy of it helped that whatever it is, 18 minutes, yeah. go by so much faster for me than American yeah. Paris. I would, that's, that's I would agree with that. That's probably the one area where I would say this movie is for sure better than American in Paris. Yeah. Why, you rattlesnake, you. You got that poor kid fired. That's not all I'm going to do if I ever get my hands on it. I never heard of anything so low. Fine, fine. Looks great. What did you do it for? Because you liked her. I could tell. So that's it. Believe me, I don't like her half as much as I hate you. You reptile. Sticks and stones may break my bones. I'd like to break every bone in your body. You and who else, you big lummox? Now kiss her, done. That's it. More. Great. Cut. Oh, Donnie, you couldn't kiss me like that and not mean it just a teensy-weensy bit. Meet the greatest actor in the world. I'd rather kiss a tarantula. Well, you don't mean that. I don't... Hey, Joe, bring me a tarantula. <laughs> now, listen, lady. Stop I'm that chit-chat, the... you love birds. Let's get another take. But there's something about this movie that it makes sense to me why this is the dearly beloved movie and an American in Paris isn't. Yeah, I think... I think that it appeals to our happiness sensors. Like, it's just, yeah. like, on a giddy level... When you see Gene Kelly do the Singing in the Rain number, there has not been a more perfect musical number ever filmed, ever, in any musical. Like, Agreed. it's just perfection. Yeah. The problem is that we don't often talk about the other hour and 35 minutes around that. Right. We just pull that clip out and we're like, yep, that's a top 10 film of all time. Right. And on this watch, Brad, I don't know if I would put it up that high. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with you. I, there was parts of the movie, like you said, that were wonderful yeah and then there's other parts that were just okay i think one of the parts that i'd never seen before that i thought was perfect was uh cosmo brown's vaudeville make him laugh mm. sequence oh, i've yeah. never seen that before oh gosh it's amazing and i about lost it yeah i ha i don't know if i've ever seen an actor with more perfect physical control over their body yeah like honestly he kind of reminds me of like a jim carrey as far as that ability to control your body to do comedic impressions and things like that but the thing too is that he has the chops like yes maybe my favorite number in the movie now and you know obviously aside from the singing in the rain number is the moses supposes number it's so good and i should hate it for all the reasons i said before about yeah. like it serves absolutely no purpose to the film whatsoever however when Kelly and O'Connor start tap dancing and they have this one part where they're dancing in front of chairs and then they leap backwards onto the chairs and they come back down. They're in such synchronization. And when you see especially two guys tap next to each other, you know, part of tap is like the way you swing your arms and use your upper body as well. Right. There have been a couple times where MGM got Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly to dance together. And, you know, Fred Astaire's older than Gene Kelly. So by the time they were in a movie together, it, it wasn't as good as it could have been. But when they danced side by side, you could see the differences in how they danced. Yeah. When Donald O'Connor dances next to Gene Kelly, he even matches the way that Kelly like moves his arms and the height that he moves his arms at it. He's the perfect dance partner for Gene Kelly. And it blows my mind because, you know, we think back to like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Right. And I think the best partner that I've ever seen dance with Gene Kelly is Donald O'Connor in that tap dance number Moses supposes. Yeah. I honestly I haven't seen enough of Gene Kelly to to put out other dance partners, but that scene was so good. And yeah. it didn't matter. Like you said, it didn't matter that it didn't serve a narrative purpose in the movie. It was so well it's done so that good. it fits. Yeah. It's good. Absolutely. 
Well, and speaking of dancing partners for Gene Kelly, I want to talk about Debbie Reynolds for a minute because she was not really a professionally trained dancer when she got to Hollywood. She had been a gymnast, but, you know, she came to MGM, signed a contract when she was 17, 18. She'd been in a couple movies, uh, sort of like teenager geared movies. And this was her first big, big role in a movie. And I think she's great. Like, I love Debbie Reynolds in this movie. You're, you're qualifying. I am qualifying here. I just can't believe that she landed this role. Yeah. And here's why. Like, she's Gene Kelly's coming off of an American in Paris. Debbie Reynolds has never been a star of a movie ever before. Right. She's not a dancer. Not to say she can't dance, but she's not a dancer. And then when you start to kind of find out some things about her performance, it makes the question marks even bigger. So do you know the scene where they have her character, Kathy, dubbing over the voice of Lena in the movie? At the very end. She's saying, like, nothing will keep us apart. No, like when they're, like, recording it. Oh, in the recording booth. Yes. So fun fact, that's not actually Debbie Reynolds voice doing really? that. Do you know whose voice it is? Uh-uh. It's the voice of the actress who played Lena. It's her real voice. Wait. Yeah. yeah. So the actress that played Lena is actually dubbing her own voice, but she's <laughs> using her real voice and not her Lena voice. Yeah. But so Debbie Reynolds wasn't even using her speaking voice in parts of the movie. And there's there's a number that she sings called uh, Would You? Yeah where she's dubbing for Lena, they got a professional singer to sing that song. So Debbie Reynolds didn't do some of the voice acting, didn't do the singing for some songs, and she's not a professional dancer. And so it kind of makes you wonder, not to say she's not wonderful in the movie, because I love her in this movie. Right. But like, we're talking about MGM studios at the peak of the studio system. Like, why didn't they find someone else to be in this movie if you had to get that many people to fill out this part. You had to shell out enough cash to fill out the role. Yeah. Why didn't you just get somebody who could do all of it? Exactly. You know, and I think I think about the ballet sequence, the Broadway melody scene, where Gene Kelly's doing this really sort of seductive dance with uh, Sid Charisse, who would go on to be a really famous musical actress. That's not Debbie Reynolds in the ballet with him. And in Singing in the Rain, Leslie Caron was dancing in the ballet sequence with Gene Kelly. I did wonder about that. I was like, why is this random chick dancing with gene kelly why isn't it debbie reynolds Debbie Reynolds, exactly so it kind of makes me wonder how hard were they trying to push her as the next big thing in hollywood that she lands this role that in a lot of ways it doesn't really seem like she was qualified for yeah you know i think the reason she was chosen for the role was her youthful innocence and her ability to draw the audience in with her sincerity with her charm with her with her cute factor like I think I think she was perfect for what they needed her to do, which wasn't necessarily dancing, singing or you know what I mean? Oh, for sure. So I I don't know. I thought I thought her performance was wonderful. I did too. It just kind of makes you wonder when you've got all these people surrounding her like a Donald O'Connor who can sing and dance and did stunts and vaudeville and Yeah. She kind of doesn't do any of those things 100%. Yeah. The only thing she really does 100% is to be charming yeah and she nails it and she nails it i feel like i'm like criticizing her and i don't mean to it just kind of piqued my interest about no you're criticizing her okay cool (laughs) (laughs) well hey let's criticize something else let's let debbie reynolds off the hook brad what do you say we try this weller special reserve All right, so today we are checking out Weller Special Reserve. Now, uh, how ancient is this whiskey, Bob? <laughs> ancienter, ancienter, not ancient test. Well, well, if you had to quantify the ancientness of this whiskey, <laughs> so uh, as far as I can tell, this does not have an age statement on it, and 
legally to not have an age statement on your bourbon has to be at least four years old. So we're looking at slightly ancient bourbon. Slightly ancient. So do you feel like that's something where people don't put an age statement to make it seem like, ooh, maybe we're like 97 year old, but really they're all four year bourbon. I think part of it is that it's blended. And so not having the age statement allows them to not have to do the math of like, (laughs) how, how old is this really? Okay. They just know that it's at least four. Okay. So uh, W.L. Weller, uh, Weller bourbon is made by Buffalo Trace. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is made in the same distillery and using roughly the same mash bill as Pappy Van Winkle. And so Weller has different tiers that you can buy. This is the cheapest one. It's a green label. It's called Special Reserve. We've had good luck with the green label before. We have. The next tier up is a red label called Weller Antique. And then the next after that is Weller 12 Year. Okay. And apparently, if you take Weller Antique and Weller 12 Year and you mix them together, you make what they call poor man's pappy. Ah. And it's, it's supposed to taste just like Pappy Van Winkle. But because pappy has become so expensive, Weller has become everyone's alternative. And so it flies off the shelf. Huh. And we're lucky enough to be in Ohio where we're in close enough proximity to Kentucky that we can get Weller. Um, and, and at a reasonable price. But even this Weller Special Reserve, you'll find it places either completely sold out or the price just absolutely astronomically jacked up. Like, I've seen this sell for $50, $60 a bottle. And in what Ohio... What we're about to drink. What we're about to drink. In Ohio, they regulate the price, and it is $22.99 for a fifth. Okay. So a very reasonable bourbon. Yeah. Uh, but again, because it has that pappy connotation... People out of state will sell it for ridiculous prices. And honestly, with my, and this is just my personal scale, I feel like with whiskeys for a fifth, there's different tiers and they kind of go almost in like 10 to $15 increments. You have $15 and under, that's your low. 15 to like 25 is like one range. Sure. And then you hit that 25 to like $40 range. That's what I would say as well. And and so on and so forth. So it's about every 15, $20. Yeah you're jumping up a level in what you should be jumping up a level in quality. I think that if you're going to compare this to something, I think a direct comparison would be Buffalo Trace's standard bourbon. And Buffalo Trace sells at the same kind of rate that Weller does. Um, But it's also in that $25 range where it's on the higher end of like a low tier, but it's not quite comparable to a $40, $50 bourbon. Right. It's a really, really solid middle tier bourbon. Well, how about we taste it and we decide Let's what decide it, it should be? What are you picking up on the nose, Brad? I'm not getting much. It's I. That wasn't an encouraging sound. It smells spicy. It doesn't smell like the ethanol that we got last episode off the ancient age. It yeah. smells hot. Like I'm expecting pepper out of this thing, which is really funny because what distinguishes Weller is that it's a weeded bourbon, meaning that after corn, the next highest Uh, ingredient in the mash bill is wheat to kind of temper down some of those harsher tones and the sweetness of the corn. So I'm kind of surprised that it smells as spicy as it does. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's an interesting smell. What do you think you'd give it on the nose, Brad? On the nose, I'm going to kind of like last week. I don't know what to give it, so I'm going to give it a five. All right, Brad's going to give it a five. I'm going to give it a six and a half. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I'm pretty sure that's exactly the same nose scores we gave last week. Did we really? Yeah. All right, let's take a sip. Ooh, that has some good body to it. Yeah, it's um, it's, <laughs> I'm always like self-conscious about using the word viscous. Now. It's so viscous. It's you know, it's not though. It's not a thick bourbon. No, but 
it's it doesn't feel as I guess complex would be the word I would use. Like yeah. it doesn't feel as thin and flat and one note as the ancient age that we had yeah. last week. There's something more to it. It tastes a little bit darker, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I really do taste a lot of spice all the way through it, like a clove or a nutmeg or something like that. Yeah, there's definitely notes of spiciness to it that I'm realizing bring complexity to bourbons mm-hmm. that you notice them when they're not there. Mm. And, and you you can taste them. They're not strong in this, yeah, but they're just there enough where you're like, wow, we got something going on here. And I will say, like, I I uh, I get the sweetness of it when it first enters my mouth, but it doesn't have a lingering sweetness, and yet it's not an unpleasant finish. Like it's bitter in an interesting way. Yeah, does that make sense? Totally. It, it's not harsh. So many times I realize that. Describing the taste of something with words is so hard. Yeah, all you people listening to us drink something. Yeah. I hope that we're doing a somewhat decent job at describing it <laughs> because it really, I don't know how else to phrase it. It's its not sweet, but it's also not harsh and unpleasant. Yeah. It's, it's just really complex, spicy. Yep. You get a lot of that wood uh, notes underneath it. I think the thing for me I, that I said at the start, it has good body to it. Absolutely. It, it's not thin. Yeah. And... I do like certain thinner whiskeys, like a lot of the Irish whiskeys, but this one, I, I'm enjoying this bourbon. All right, then. Well, what would you give it on taste then, Bob? I know I, I was flirting with a seven and a half, um, but I do think I've had whiskeys that I really like the flavor a lot more. I'm going to give it a seven. Seven it is for me. All right. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. Solid seven. Yeah. The finish, like I said, it is not sweet, um, and I really do prefer my bourbons to be sweet. I really like to have that corn aftertaste. I think the wheat definitely does temper that down a little bit. And yet, for some reason, it doesn't temper down the heat and the spice. And it kind of leaves a little bit of that bitterness after it. Not unpleasant, but not my preference either. So on finish, I think I'll give it a six. I'm going to give it a six and a half. Okay. I think it's a little... It drops off a little bit from the taste. Mm -hmm. But I, I still enjoy the finish quite a bit. So six and a half it is. Yeah. All right, overall balance, we're talking uh, nose, taste, and finish. Brad, what would you say you'd give Weller? You know, I didn't notice much on the nose. Even even now, I'm, I'm taking a few whiffs of it, and I just, I don't feel like I'm noticing a ton. Mm-hmm. But then it powers through on the on the taste and the finish. Sure. I'm going to give it a six. Okay. I, th- I think it's above average. It's a decent finish. Not the best. You know, as I, as I put my nose kind of back into this, I'm picking up a lot more like citrusy, you know, whereas last time we, we talked about the green apple notes, it smells more like an orange or a grapefruit to me. Yeah. I kind of wonder how this would stand up in an old fashioned because of those sort of more nutmeg clove notes along with the citrus. I think this might be a really good old fashioned bourbon. Yeah. Overall, the balance, uh, it was pretty consistent throughout and I I was more than moderately impressed with it all the way through. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and give it a seven on the balance and then overall value this was twenty two ninety nine for a fifth. So we're talking. I mean, it's it's right there with your Buffalo Traces, with you know, right above like a Jim Beam. It's right there with your Jack Daniels. And I would absolutely prefer this to some of those more mass produced, you know, Jack Daniels, especially. I would agree for sure. And th- and this is something that you wouldn't necessarily want to use as a mixer, but you might want to use it as your old fashioned bourbon. You, yeah, you could try it that way. And I I think that that is a good thing. That that's something that. You want to find a good bourbon to make old fashions with. Absolutely. Because if you want to appear fancy in front of other people, make an old fashioned. Right. So, Brad, $23. You're talking about that middle tier. How does this stack up 
when I say 23 bucks in terms of value. Man, that I'm I'm actually really struggling with this right now. If it was four or five dollars more, I would give it a very bad score. Yeah. But at the twenty-two, twenty-three dollar mark, I'll give it a six and a half. I'm gonna give it an eight. I really don't I can't think of any other bourbons in this price range that I would absolutely prefer to it. Really? I do still think that like if I had this next to a Heaven Hill Green label. I would be hard pressed because Heaven Hill is such an astronomical value. Yeah. But again, that's like one in a million. Yeah. I mean, at this price point, $22.99, I'm going to go ahead and give it an eight. Yeah. On the value. I think that's fair. So that brings me out to a 34 and a half. Brad, what does that put you at? 31. 31, which brings us to an average of 32.75. Ooh. So we're above that 60% mark. This is well above average. Yep. Uh, this is in a like a good quality bourbon range. And honestly, I would put this, this is a perfect example. If you listen last week to the ancient, ancient, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't remember anything about it other than it was called ancient, ancient. Right. This is the, a perfect example of this is what quality should go up Yeah. by price. Yep. You know, you paid about $12 for a fifth of ancient, ancient, and then you paid $22 for this. This is exactly the amount of quality higher that I would expect it to be. Yeah. Now, I will say that I have had uh, Weller Antique, the red label, the next one up from this. I've not had Weller 12. Have you ever it's had just, Pappy's? It's just impossible to find. I have not had Pappy, not not because I can't find it, but because I can't afford it. Yeah. So <laughs> let's, be, let's yeah. just be honest here. Weller Antique, in my opinion, is astronomically better and astronomically different than this. And Brad, I'm going to let you know a little secret. As we go forward with our Summer of Bourbon, we're going to have Weller Antique. I'm bringing it in next time. Ooh. And I want to hear your thoughts on... Yeah. The comparison to Weller Special Reserve and Weller Antique, because guys, if you can find Weller Antique for seven dollars more, so thirty dollars, it's thirty dollars if it's not marked up. Yeah, I've seen it for one hundred and twenty-five in, in wow. New York City. So, look, Weller Special Reserve is great. Weller Antique is a completely different beast, okay. and I'm excited for that. But Brad, would you recommend Weller Special Reserve? I would hesitantly say yeah. Hesitantly, interesting. Yeah, it, it's not my favorite. And I, I do only give it a six and a half on value. It's yeah. not the best value I've ever seen, but it's a good bourbon. Sure. I would recommend. I mean, I think that if you're in a whiskey bar, they're probably not charging more than five to seven dollars for a shot of this. Yeah. And that's I mean, that's that's low end. And for low end, this is about the best you can get. This is yeah. quite good. So I would recommend. Yeah. Well, guys, we're so thankful that you are joining us for the summer of bourbon. <laughs> This is week three. This is week We've got three. three more weeks, three more bourbons. So why don't we get back into talking about singing in the rain, Brad? What do you say? Sounds good. So that was Weller's Special Reserve. Brad uh, hesitantly recommended. I recommend. Yeah. Uh, the movie, though. Highly recommend. We both recommend. 10 out of 10. <laughs> Let's end the podcast now. Right now. So, Brad, you know, we've, we've been talking about where we want to go from here. And I think the fact that the Internet randomizer put American in Paris and Singing in the Rain within like, what, three or four months of each other yeah. on this podcast. We've got to compare them a little bit. Like, yeah. we're never going to have this opportunity again. And I think, you know, obviously the common denominator is Gene Kelly. Yeah. And I want to talk about his performance as an actor in Singing in the Rain. How do you think that, A, his performance was here and B... How do you think it stacked up against what he did in American in Paris? It's really hard because they're such different movies. Yeah, they really are. And it's amazing that Gene Kelly was 
a director on both of them. Yeah, in some capacity, for in sure. In some capacity. Yeah. I, like, it blows me away how different they are. Um, I really loved him in An American in Paris. Mm-hmm. I thought he was really good in this. Yeah. He, but he didn't blow me away. I'll say that I think as an actor, he's better in this than he is in American in Paris. And part That's of it like is... like not dancing or saying... No, like, no, no. Like, just his acting chops. And okay. I think that it's because... He's not working with a director that's as assured as Minnelli. Hmm. Like Minnelli knew exactly where he wanted Gene Kelly to be in the shot at all times. And like in some I get the sense that in some ways Gene Kelly's kind of like a prop in American in Paris. Right. Whereas here Stanley Donnan's like, I'm going to move the camera in and out. Like do do what you do. The scene where he is showing Debbie Reynolds around the empty soundstage and singing the song to her in the the purple moonlight. Right. There's some stuff that Gene Kelly's doing with his facial expressions and his eye movements that is really good quality acting. And you don't really get that in an American in Paris, especially like in close-ups. Stanley Donnan gives Gene Kelly a ton of close-ups in this movie, and I think he does make the most of them. And it's interesting because Gene Kelly almost makes a joke about that when they're moving to doing talking pictures, and he says... I'm just going to say what I always say. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> right, right. And it's like he almost makes a joke of like... Well, I'm just going to do me. I'm just going to do what I want to do. There's a microphone right there in the bush. Yeah. You have to talk into it. I was talking, wasn't I, Miss Dinsmore? Yes, my dear, but please remember, round a tone. Pierre, you shouldn't have come. Pierre, you shouldn't have come. Yes, yes, my dear, that's much better now. Hold it a second. Now, Lena, look. Here's the mic right here in the bush. Yeah. Now you talk, Todds. The sound goes through the cable to the box. A man records it on a big record in wax. But you have to talk into the mic first. In the bush. Now try it again. She is dumb. Oh, she'll get it, Dexter. Look, Lena, don't worry. We're all a little nervous the first day. Everything's going to be okay. Oh, by the way, Roscoe, you know the scene coming up where I say, Imperious Princess of the Night? I don't like those lines there. Is it all right if I just say what I always do? I love you, I love you, I love you. Sure. Anyway, it's comfortable. But into the bush! But I would agree that he he seems, I don't know, more like loosey-goosey in this movie than he does in An American in Paris. Yeah, I get the sense that he's relying on what he knows in this movie. And he's pretty assured of himself. And it yeah. was kind of cool to see him do that. Well, it, and essentially, in the... In this movie, he is definitely playing real-life Gene Kelly, so much more so than an American in Paris, because mm. literally, think about the title of the movie. He is an American artist, painter, yeah. in Paris. Yeah. He has to play a character, whereas, really, I think you could parallel Singing in the Rain with his real life in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that there's some overlap, but then there's also the off-screen persona of Kelly. He was known for being not just a perfectionist, but kind of a taskmaster. Yeah. And he really, really punished Debbie Reynolds in this movie for Did, not being a professional dancer. Didn't we also say that about Leslie Curran, that he was really brutal with her? We talked about it a little bit. And and I think that what you had mentioned on air was that you had always thought Fred Astaire was kind of the jerk. Yeah. But in real life, Gene Kelly was that guy. Okay. And there's this really famous story uh, from Hollywood that Debbie Reynolds had been dancing, you know, trying to get this scene down with Gene Kelly, and he had insulted her so badly that she ran off from the practice room crying and went into another room and hid under a piano to cry. And while she was, like, under the piano holding her knees crying, she saw the door open and a pair of feet kind of walking into the room. 
And she peeked out from under the piano and it was Fred Astaire. And he said, what's wrong? You know, what's going on? And she told him what was happening with Gene Kelly. And Fred Astaire helped her learn the dance for the scene. I've heard that story. Yeah, yeah. It's a really famous story. And it's true. As far as we know, it's true. But I think that it really gets at what kind of a guy Kelly was in real life. And that's not necessarily to say that he's an awful human being, but he was so perfectionistic. And what he was trying to do to advance the medium of dance in film, like he didn't have time in his mind to mess with this novice. Yeah. And years later, he even admitted that he had been terrible to Debbie Reynolds. And he said, like, I'm actually surprised that she'll still talk to me after the way I treated her on that film set. Right. Yeah. And that's just stuff like that is so hard to hear because you appreciate Gene Kelly for the beauty of his dancing and his acting. And he genuinely comes across as this nice, loving character. Yeah. And to know that he was kind of a jerk in real life, yeah. it, it does make it a little bit harder. Absolutely. And I think it makes you respect, especially the female characters in these films. You know, with Ginger Rogers, the, the old adage is that she did everything that Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in heels. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the heels that they make Debbie Reynolds wear, even in like the Good Morning number. Like her, her taps aren't flat. They're on heels. Yeah. And she's not a professional dancer. And for her to be able to keep up with Gene Kelly on one side of her and Donald O'Connor on the other, I think you got to give her credit. There were moments where they did that number for good morning from, I think it said like eight in the morning till 11 at night. That's absolutely brutal. It really is. And you know, she, (laughs) she had this quote that she said after the fact that singing in the rain and childbirth are the two hardest things I ever had to do in my life. (laughs) And I think it's time that we acknowledge what they put, especially the females through to get the end result is sometimes, like you said, brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing to me that I think the reason we appreciate it so much, though, is partially because she wasn't a professional. Yeah. You mean like if she was already a professional dancer, like you look at White Christmas and the the main character in that movie, the the younger sister, she was a professional ballet dancer. Yeah. So you look at her performance and you go, wow, she was amazing, but she should be. Right. And even with Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, you watch their performances and you go, oh my God, it's stunning. And, you know, they advance the medium. They're amazing, but they should be. They're Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. Exactly. They're professionals. And I think that's the danger with this movie is that we're getting into comparisons and I, I shouldn't have to compare it to American in Paris. It should stand on its own legs, and it's not quite fair for us to compare it to American in Paris. And that's part of the challenge with me giving a score to this movie as we move into like our final verdicts here. Because there are things that Donnan does with the camera that are incredible. Like, I'm thinking of the Broadway melody ballet. There's this one moment where Gene, the character Gene Kelly's playing, he gets down on one knee and says, gotta dance, and it's a close-up. And the camera pulls all the way back through a crowd of people until it becomes a crane shot that's like standing high above them. And then it pushes all the way back in on these two flapper girls faces with the focus blurred in the background. It is technically an incredible shot to pull off. Yeah. And Donnan's doing stuff that's just different than what Minnelli did. And so part of me is like, look, do I think Donnan's as good of a director as Minnelli? No, but that doesn't mean that what he was doing was bad. He's just doing a completely different way of making a musical. Right. Brad, if you had to give this movie a score, not in comparison to American in Paris, but just as a film, what would you give this movie? I would give this movie an eight and a half. Eight and a half. Yeah. I think that you gave American in Paris a nine. No. No? You gave American in Paris a nine. I gave it a seven and a half. A seven and a half. Okay, so you do think this is a better film than American in Paris? I 
I enjoyed it more. Yeah. I, I really did. I think there's certain aspects of an American in Paris that could be better. But I think overall, the like you said at the start, an American in Paris is more of a uh, level movie as far as its emotional highs and lows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Man, the emotional highs of Singing in Rain just get you. They can't be they topped. get I mean, you where yeah, it counts. Absolutely. And so I'm not going to say that it's a perfect movie because the lows are low. There are certain parts of the movie that aren't great. And like you said at the very start of the episode, there's some fat on this movie. For sure. But overall, I like this movie a lot. And I would say that I like it more than an American in Paris. I think it's fair. I think that I want to say that I like it more than an American in Paris, but I think I like it equally. And if you could somehow take an American in Paris and Singing in the Rain and mash them up together and pull the best moments out of both, it's a perfect movie. But what they do well feeds off each other and what they do poorly feeds off each other. So I think that I would give this movie a nine and I'm shocked to say that because for such a long time, I was just automatically putting it in my top 10, 20 movies of all time. Right. But watching it with a really critical eye stacked up against some of these other movies we've seen. Look, would I put this in my top hundred? Absolutely. This is a landmark classic movie, but I do think that we have to kind of step back from just automatically inserting it into the top 10 and really ask some questions about the merits of the movie. It's got some fat on it. And that's okay. It's still fun. And I will always love watching Gene Kelly splash around in puddles. It's yes. just a high that can never be topped in American cinema. I was going to say, it's it's not just a high in the movie. It really is a high in American cinema. Absolutely. In the history of American film. It's just beautiful. But we want to know what you think. So hit us up on social media. Brad, where can they find us? On Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, you can look us up at Film Whiskey with an E. At Film Whiskey with an E. Or you could give us a call. Leave a voicemail on our call-in line. You can give us a call at 216-800-5923. That's 216-800-5923. Next week, we'll be back talking about the 1994 animated classic, The Lion King. The Lion King. I can't wait, Brad. This is like a hallmark of our childhoods. Oh, yeah. I can't We were both wait. born in 1990. Yeah. This movie defined a generation. We'll talk about it next week. Guys, we are so excited. Come back next week and listen to it. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I am Brad G. We'll see you next time.